Okay, um, we're going to get started. What we'd like to do this evening is to um, first just uh, make some welcoming remarks uh, on behalf of the LSE, uh, DFID, and Oxford. And then from them we'll pass on to a session, which is a session you can see on the, on the screenshot there, uh, on cities which Tony Venables and Paul, Ke uh, Paul Collier uh, will be uh, leading. So f first up, we have um, Nick Dyer. Um, Tim Besley once remarked at the, that there was a lack of uh, constancy in, in, in DFID in terms of the IGC, but Nick has been with us uh, from the beginning and chairs the management committee that governs the uh, IGC. So without further ado, I'd like to ask Nick to just say a few words on behalf of uh, DFID. Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, Robin, and uh, good evening, everybody. Um, I'm absolutely delighted to be able to say a few words at the opening of this, this um, seminar tonight and at the start of IGC's fourth growth week. Because if you are interested in, in development and the issue of helping to reduce poverty, you have to believe in the issue of economic development and growth. And in government, and certainly in DFID, we are constantly asking ourselves two questions. The first is, what are the building blocks that underpin private sector growth and prosperity? Now, as everybody in this room knows, we know some things about what is needed to promote growth, and we know actually quite a lot of things that we don't know um, about what is needed to, to promote growth. And Michael Spence and the Growth Commission is always a good reminder to go back to when he said that there are, there's no recipe, but there are only ingredients for promoting growth. But as the Prime Minister pointed out at the recent Family Planning Conference in July, we need to understand the enablers that run through the stories of successful development in the countries in which we uh, partnership with across the world. So what are those enablers? What are the enablers that the Prime Minister pointed to? Well, he highlighted an absence of conflict, access to markets, transparency, property rights, the rule of law, the absence of corruption, a free media, free and fair elections. It's a long list and I'm sure everybody can, will, and should debate that list, what should be on it and what shouldn't be on it. But certainly we should be debating that list. The second question that we are continually asking ourselves in DFRD is how to bring the lessons of successful development to the very different context in which we work. To understand and work with the political realities of power and relationships in supporting the countries that we partner with on the path of change. All of us can point to good technical solutions that fail the political test of reality. So it's for those two reasons, and those, to answer those two questions, is the reason why we set up the International Growth Centre. We see the IGC as a unique and groundbreaking programme through its ability to do four things. First, access truly world-class advice and research. Second, work directly with governments through its country-based operations. Third, to provide advice on a demand basis on frontier research and, if required, to provide advice to countries confidentially. 
and fourth, to cement the no-strings approach to policy advice. So we think that this unique approach has enabled the IGC to contribute ideas in areas ranging from the global debate on state building to individual governments' strategies for increasing economic growth rates, its work on managing natural resources, rethinking the role of taxation, public spending, etc. The key thing is that it matches academic rigour with in-country knowledge and relationships with critical decision makers. So that's the theory. Does it work? Well, we think it does. And I'll give you three examples of where we think this kind of approach can actually lead to direct impacts in developing countries. First, the continuing work on enterprise mapping, which has helped initiate reforms to the Ethiopian Export Agency. Second, the work to review Zambia's mineral tax regime, which is expected to increase mining tax revenue and provide a tax regime that's more stable and predictable for investors. And third, the work in Pakistan to increase the efficiency of tax policy, which helped lead to changes in tax laws. These are hard examples of the direct impact of the work of the IGC. So I'm really pleased to be able to announce at the start of this growth week that a second four-year phase of funding for the IGC has been agreed in principle by ministers. We expect phase two to focus on consolidation by deepening the growth policy work in existing countries to support a limited increase in the number of countries in which the IGC operates and to broaden engagement across a wider range of stakeholders. The challenge in the next three months is to agree three things. First, a set of performance indicators against which we will judge progress and success. Second, to consider how the IGC can increase its footprint in the current global growth debates. For example, what should be the role of growth when thinking about the next set of Millennium Development Goals, which finish in 2015? And third, which of the building blocks, if any, we should give greater emphasis? So we've got quite a lot of work to do to finalise the next phase of the IGC, but I think the examples that we can all point to really make this an exciting agenda to work on together. So I look forward not only to engaging in the fourth growth week, but I also very much look forward to engaging in the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, and the eighth. So thank you. Thank you very much. Um, next up, we have um, Stuart Corbridge, who uh, is the Pro-Director for Research and External Relations at the LSC. I think one thing that we should mention about Stuart is that uh, one of the places we've worked on a lot in the last few years has been Bihar, which uh, uh, Stuart spent a long time researching. And it's been good to have that, uh, that sort of uh, experience when we're discussing what the IGC is trying to do. Because if you, for those who don't know, Bihar has been one of the places in India that's had the biggest uh, turnaround and growth. So, Stuart. Thank you, Robin. And it's very nice to see old friends from Bihar in the audience. I'm looking at directly at Shaibal Gupta <laughs> up there. Uh, it's my great pleasure on behalf of LSE to welcome all of you both tonight and to Growth Week more generally. I don't want to uh, repeat all that Nick has said, but I do want to emphasize that the core of Nick's message is one that's very much shared uh, by the school. 
It has been a particular pleasure for me as Pro-Director for Research and External Relations uh, to work with colleagues from DFID and from Oxford and from LSE to make sure that we can move, as I hope we will do, uh, smoothly from phase one of the IGC contract to phase two. This matters to the school hugely for a number of reasons that I just want to go through very quickly, bearing in mind that we want to get to the substantive business tonight. Um, many of you will know that the LSE is a very distinctive university. We're a fairly small university with 9,000 students. We have a distinctive history going back to 1895. But I think in addition to good teaching, what we stand for is first-rate scholarship. Secondly, a long history of public engagement that goes right back to the work of the founders, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, George Bernard Shaw and others, and a profound commitment to internationalism. Sometimes people seem to be concerned by the fact that the vast majority of students that they see in the Houghton Street campus don't apparently come from the UK, although what they might expect a UK student to look like is never entirely clear to me. But that commitment to internationalism is written into the DNA of the school. Uh, Jomo Kenyatta came here, Kwame Nkrumah came here, more recently John Atta Mills, the recently deceased president of Ghana, came here. And that commitment to high-quality scholarship, public engagement, and internationalism, it seems to me, finds a perfect analogue in the International Growth Centre. LSE academics at the moment are centrally involved in debates over pension reform in the UK, the financing of long-term health care. Most of the work on the student loan scheme has been done by colleagues from social policy or by economics. Uh, I even have a colleague in management who advises goalkeepers on how to, to dive in penalty shootout competitions using game theory. He actually advised <laughs> Chelsea against Manchester United in the European Cup final when he was sabotaged by John Terry's slip at the last minute. But nothing exemplifies, I think, more what the LSE is about uh, uh, than the IGC. As Nick says, this seems to me to be a wholly unique project which pulls together from around the world the very best expertise in development economics. And then it marshals that knowledge through the hub in London and in Oxford and transfers it to areas of priority, areas where we want to see poverty alleviation broadly defined around the world, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and in South Asia. And that, that is a very huge undertaking and it's been a bit of a learning curve to make sure that we do it as effectively as we should do it. And the intention in the next phase of phase two of course is to scale up IGC so that we're more active in more countries and we're more able to respond to what is happening. Real demand from below for advice from the IGC. Advice that is different for example than the advice that might be offered by the World Bank. Uh, Nick has already mentioned, for example, Tanzania and Ethiopia. Uh, and this extraordinary story of the involvement of, particularly in this case, LSE academics in the partial redesign of tax codes in Pakistan, which I think potentially uh, could run into billions of dollars worth of uh, revenue for Pakistan, perfectly exemplifies what we're trying to do uh, with the IGC. My sense, Nick, is that phase two will be uh, an upward curve, uh, that we've commissioned a large amount of fundamental economic research already, which we'll continue to do, but the payoffs 
in terms of in-country assistance uh, will rapidly expand. Uh, I'll conclude then mainly with some thanks. I don't think that an enterprise as large as uh, the IGC can happen accidentally. Uh, we're extremely grateful to DFID for their support. I I'd like particularly to thank Alan Winters, who was the previous chief economist at uh, uh, DFID for the work that he did on behalf of DFID. Uh, Mark Lowcock, the permanent secretary, Michael Anderson, Nick, and a number of people that we work with on a more day-to-day -day basis. And I hope that the new Secretary of State, Justine Greening, uh, will show the same interest in IGC that her predecessor, even though he's in some difficulties right now, uh, has showed in IGC. I'm particularly grateful to colleagues at Oxford and most of all to, uh, I'll tell you, Venables is taking part tonight, but Paul Collier uh, for the work that he's done on behalf of IGC in a very everyday and practical fashion. Uh, to my colleague, uh, Tim Besley here, at LSE, to Adnan Khan, I saw Mark Henstridge earlier on who was involved with Ines Garcia in phase one of IGC, and if I might mention them, Mike Ferguson and David Coombe, my colleagues. But it's a particular pleasure to close my remarks of welcome uh, and congratulations and a sense of pride in IGC uh, to thank our host tonight, Robin Burgess, because I can say very clearly, and I think without fear of contradiction, that the movement from phase one to phase two of IGC, on our side at least, Nick, uh, owes more to the huge <coughs> amount of work and imagination that Robin has put into this project. So we accept your challenges. We accept that phase two will have to be different from phase one, will have to be better than phase one. We accept the three specific challenges that you gave to us uh, with great pleasure. Uh, and I'd simply like, again, to repeat that you're all very welcome here at the school. I hope you enjoy Growth Week and I hope particularly that you enjoyed tonight's session. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, so I'm Robin Burgess. I'm a professor of economics here, as uh, uh, Stuart indicated, and uh, director with Paul of this, uh, this enterprise, the International Growth Centre. I wanted just to say a couple of things on two things, really. The first is sort of the IGC is an experiment, because I think we have to be honest that when we started this and wrote the bid document and pulled together the whole caboodle, we weren't sure exactly how well it would work. We thought it was an interesting idea. And so the basic idea is to sort of push research, but research meaning frontier research, research that's done in universities, together with policy making. And that was something that had not been done systematically uh, uh, in many places. I mean, it happens a bit in the UK and the US and so forth, but had not happened to a great deal in many developing countries. We felt, well, then you're not getting the benefit of that analytical thinking that comes out of research. So it was basically a big, ex big experiment. And in many ways, I've been surprised by the enthusiasm that has come out, not just from the researchers who benefit from going and starting projects they couldn't have started and having you know, their research facilitated, talking to top policymakers, getting hold of data. That, in some sense, was surprising because there's many projects we can point to, both, both uh, Stuart and Nick pointed to them, a number of them, which wouldn't have happened without the IGC. And I guess that's sort of a mark uh, from a research side of success. But I think much more fundamentally, I was very surprised at the kind of great enthusiasm by which the, uh, the policymakers in the countries accepted us, welcomed us, 
talked to us, helped us to get all sorts of projects off the ground. And key to that was, of course, the country directors who worked tirelessly to make that bridge at the country level work. Uh, so alongside the country directors, we had lead academics who also played that role. So in many ways, it was, it's been uh, heartening to see that happen. And as I think as Stuart sort of indicated, it's, it's a curve. It, you know, there's a lot of fixed costs here. And getting it right, it takes time. And as you start to see it take off, we'll hopefully point to more and more examples in the, in the upcoming uh, growth weeks. Now, what I sort of reflected about why are these people putting all this effort into the IGC, I think that it sort of comes back to something which is central to the LSE. And the LSE motto, as many of you know, is to know the causes of things. So I think what joins the researchers and the policymakers is, in effect, a kind of intellectual curiosity about how the world works, how does policy affect things like growth and poverty. That's one thing. And the second thing is, of course, that this stuff matters. As Nick was saying, if, you know, I remember Montek Singh Alawali a long time telling me, you know, it's very difficult. If you think about a sort of quality dimension of policy from 1 to 10, it's extremely difficult to move from 8 to 9 or 9 to 10. But if you can move from 2 to 7 or even from 3 to 4, then that's going to have a huge effect on living standards. And so I think that sort of common interest in improving living standards by, you know, creating economic growth is something that probably joins us. But the intellectual curiosity is also very important. We, we, we want to know how things work, and we want to influence the way the world works. So that was one thing I wanted to say. The, sec the second thing I wanted to say is on innovation. So what's innovative here? I think what's innovative is very basic. At the base of the IGC, you have research programs, everything from agriculture to macro. And then you have, now I think in 12 countries at the last council, any, any, anywhere from sort of... Uh, I think the latest one was South Sudan, when we're trying to go into Myanmar at the moment. Any, you know, a range of countries, both in South Asia and in, in uh, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. But what's innovative is that space in the middle, and all the examples that you both you know, pointed to were spaces in the middle, sort of clusters of stuff that were sort of getting better at understanding. And I just want to sort of, for the, for the benefit of those who are not IGC insiders, just you know, mention a few of those areas. So the, the areas that come to mind are sort of areas around state building. So questions about public finance, about planning, about macroeconomic management, but also about how do you motivate public servants to do their jobs better. Okay, so big questions around political economy, accountability, transparency. And then second, you know, one of the big drivers, industrial development, something which has not been a huge area of focus, with, certainly within development economics for a long time, the kind of production side of things. And, you know, you have big areas around industrial organization, around finance that are important there. And then this, this growing area of sort of trade and urbanization, sort of a, you know, that again fits into the industrial development space, but incredibly important, thinking about how cities work, how can firms be made you know, to function better, the kind of things that we're going to be discussing uh, this evening. And then another area which I think we're, we're becoming more and more excited about is this whole sort of area of sort of diversification and structural change. So we don't want to just think about the big firms. We want to think about, you know, if you're a laborer, how do you move from being a laborer into some form of self-employment? Or how do you move from being a laborer in agriculture, say, into working in, in some form of firm, even if it's a very small firm? Because those are huge steps in productivity for those people. <coughs> And that again goes back to a big area in development, which is the sort of the shift of people and resources 
uh, away from agriculture and into services and manufacturing, which is again an area which we're, we're in. And then finally, one again that was mentioned, this whole question around natural resources, environment and growth. Because in many of the countries from Myanmar to many of the African countries, the natural resource sector is a very big part of the economy. And how do you manage that and harness that to, to benefit? So what I wanted to do is just to close by sort of a, a sort of a, a, a thought about how, how do you think about the IGC. I think you th basically think about the IGC as being getting the best minds in the world to work alongside and with, and the with is very important, with a range of stakeholders, mainly governments, but also the NGOs and the private sector, to come up with innovative projects that tell us something about how to drive growth forward in these, in these countries. And in those areas that I mentioned, I think we can now point to bodies of evidence where we're beginning to do that. I think we're a humble organization. We don't want to overclaim that we're sort of you know, increasing GDP growth rates in countries by percentage points. But I think that knowledge that's coming out of these projects is of some use. So there's a sort of, a, a, I think in the next phase, going to be a focusing much more upon this whole question about how do you sort of enhance state capabilities to drive forward private sector development. But if I'm honest, the thing that really joins us is this common aim to sort of drive up the productivity of both individuals, people, and firms. So that you know, ultimately increases living standard around the world. So without further ado, I'm going to pass the baton on to um, uh, Sam, uh, Paul, and Tony to take us now to the, as it were, the substantive session of the evening on City. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Robin. And uh, as Robin sketched, the, the difference between phase one and phase two of the IGC is those five thematic clusters, sort of bridge between the, the, the ten research programs and the countries. And one of those clusters of research programs is around cities. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about now. So, in a sense, IGC phase two begins right here. Um, there are, uh, it's going to be a triple presentation. Um, myself, Tony Venables, and Ben Akweza, who is the commissioner from uh, Lagos for planning and economic development. And who could be more appropriate? Because Lagos um, has two really important features. One, it's the main city in Africa. It's Africa's future. It's the big coastal West African city. That is where Nigeria, Africa's main country, is going to develop. But secondly, Lagos State is distinguished by having a very innovative government. Nigeria, the major state in Africa, is 36 states, of those 36, without question, the leading innovator is Lagos State under Governor Fasher. And so what could be better than the Commissioner for Economic Planning here tonight to talk about the development of Lagos City and basically to react to the academic perspectives that Tony and I will bring. Now, it's pretty obvious that um, cities are fundamental um, to development. What's a little bit less obvious is that within that process of 
cities being fundamental to development, housing is really absolutely central. Um, and it's central in, 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 in two big senses. One is that the quality of housing is itself a massive input into people's living standards. Um, just think how the quality of people's lives is affected by whether they're living in a shack without running water, without electricity, or in decent housing. So many other things, education of children, health, depend upon decent housing. Um, the other is, um, so that's, that's sort of obvious, but the, the less obvious is that housing is an astonishingly important <coughs> asset. Um, in Britain, which is fairly <coughs> typical, about half of the entire tangible assets of the country are housing. So if you mess up the process of investment in housing, you've not messed up the tail on the dog, you've messed up the dog. Right? Now, we're going to argue that actually that's what's happened in a lot of Africa and South Asia, that this fundamental big component of the investment process has just not worked very well. In fact, has worked extraordinarily badly. And that it's been extremely neglected by the research community. Um, housing is analytically distinctive. Um, it's, uh, it's performed by a distinctive agent. Housing is, the investment in housing is by households, not firms. It's produced by a distinctive sector. Housing is non-traded capital good. And so it has to be produced within the country, whereas equipment, for low-income countries, equipment is just imported. So it's distinctive agent that's doing its distinctive financing. The banks, the formal financial sector, doesn't touch financing of housing at all. So here's a, here's a highly distinctive category, and yet, um, and yet it's been hugely neglected. If you compare it with um, both public investment and private investment by firms, and you check any development economics textbook, you'll find reams on public investment. You'll find reams on private investment from the perspective of the firm, basically focused on equipment, and you'll find practically nothing on housing. So, let's get a steer from the 19th century. In fact, let's get a steer from London. Um, London in the 19th century grew um, much like African cities today in terms of overall rates of growth. 19, in 1800, London had a population of 1 million. By 1900, had a population of 6 million. So, and who, who came to London? Peasants. Right? It was exactly that, peasants into rapid urbanization that is going to be happening in Africa and will be happening in Africa the next 20 years. Also, the level of per capita income in London in the 19th century was actually pretty well where Africa is today. Now, what happened in London, and I could have, 
I'm just using London because we're in it. I could have taken Chicago, Melbourne, Manchester, any of the big growth 19th century cities. What happened was utterly different from what's happening in Africa now. Because the key distinction was that urbanization in Africa stayed, sorry, in London, stayed entirely formal. It never informalized. Housing was built in London to official building standards. So building standards existed. They'd actually existed in London since the Middle Ages. Building standards existed, were enforced. You got formal building firms, albeit small, building to architects' plans, standardized architects' plans. And you got a coordination of the whole infrastructure because the, the, a lot of the land in London was owned by the big ducal estates. And so the big ducal estates planned the whole process. Why? Because they captured the benefits. So they coordinated the provision of infrastructure, of roads, and such like. So a process that um, stayed entirely formal, legal, title, and that process triggered financial innovation. Very exciting financial innovation. Then, as now, it was recognized that the banks were just useless for financing housing. Their cost structures were completely inappropriate. They were just too expensive. And so the innovation was to develop a new class of financial institution invented during that 19th century urbanization, the building society. And what was the model of the building society? It was have very low administrative costs. Why could it do that? Because it wasn't taking any risk. It was lending on secure collateral, lending very long term, so the administrative costs per amount of money turned over were very low. You only turn it over once every 20 years or so. So very low administrative costs, very low default rates because of really good collateral. And so, very cheap borrowing. Greatly helped by the fact that there was very low inflation. So that's the 19th century London, 19th century Melbourne, 19th century Chicago. And what about 21st century Africa or 21st century Asia? Nothing like that. What we've seen in the big cities of Africa and Asia is informality. In fact, it's a bifurcation of housing between a tiny formal sector, <coughs> financed by banks, building regulations, and a vast, completely informal sector. People live in shacks with none of the uh, advantages that formality provided. So the question is, why has Africa and South Asia today not followed that 19th century model. And our argument is that um, there are five conditions which have to be met. Um, 
in order for that formal process to work. Um, without that formal process, uh, informality is not your friend. Informality is, is, is a mess. Um, so, uh, although it's common to celebrate informality, we think informality is symptomatic of a, of a serious failure. So, what are the five conditions that have to be met? Um, I'll just summarize the five. I'm going to cover the first three quickly, and then Tony is going to cover the big last two. Um, so, the first condition was uh, that f formal housing was affordable in London in the 19th century. Of course, it isn't affordable in London now, but it was in the 19th century. Huh? So affordability is going to be number one. Number two is going to be legal rights. Number three is going to be the financial innovation I mentioned. Number four is going to be the provision of infrastructure in advance of the housing, not retrofitted. And number five, is going to be that the housing is combined with opportunities for income, so that cities are not just decent places to live, they generate the opportunities for people to work. So the opportunities to work are not exogenous, they're endogenous to the process of good housing accumulation. So I'm going to start with, um, oh, sorry, I want to make one point that follows from the fact that there are five distinct impediments. And it's really important. These five distinct impediments all lodge in the responsibility of different ministries, different bits of government. Legal rights, right? the Justice Department or the courts or whatever. Right? Infrastructure, Ministry of Public Works, I suppose. Finance for housing, probably the central bank. The payoff to fixing any one of these problems, if the other four remain, is very low. And so the incentive for any one agency to fix these problems is very limited. And so the only way you're going to address these problems if it is elevated to the top of government. Unless it reaches the top of government, there is no span of control which can cover these five distinct impediments. Now that's why it's so exciting to have Ben here tonight, because Nigeria is a federal system with a lot of devolved power to the states, and Governor Fashola has, for Lagos State, that span of control. So let me get stuck in with impediment number one which is affordability. Okay. Housing needs to be affordable. And the starting point in thinking about affordability in a formal system is building standards. If building standards are set too high, formal housing becomes unaffordable. And unfortunately, that, has, that is what has happened. And we can date it very precisely to 1947. In 1947, Britain introduced the Parker-Morris standards and legislated something called the Town and Country Planning Act, which was a very ambitious increase in British building standards. The standards were ahead of their time. They anticipated rising income 
And fortuitously for Britain, we then went into a phase of remarkably rapid growth, so that by around 1970, the standards were right for the level of income. And that was the right thing to do, because housing lasts a long time, so you need to anticipate a bit. But the problem was, in 1947, the whole of Africa was still a British colony, except for the bit that was French or Portuguese. And the government rolled out the Town and Country Planning Act, not just in Britain, but across Africa. And so these building standards, which were going to be appropriate thanks to fast growth in Britain by 1970, were dumped on Africa, for which they were wildly inappropriate. Current level of income in Africa is about one twentieth of the level of income in Britain in 1970. So you've got building standards which are massively too high. They were inherited by newly independent African governments who faced the invidious choice of is our first act on independence to lower standards? And of course they didn't. Of course they didn't. They've left those standards there. But what that meant was that formal housing compliant with building standards became unaffordable. Now that's not a joke, oh we can ignore the standards, we just do it informally. That's of course what happened, but informality is a killer. Informality means you don't have legal title that will serve as collateral. It means that because you're not complying with building standards, a lot of things, when you buy a house, it's a pig in a poke. You cannot tell what the foundations are like unless it's been compliant with building standards. Okay. So, bifurcation starts with that Town and Country Planning Act of 1947 and, uh, and has been, been there ever since. Um, building standards are not the only problem Second problem is very high unit costs of uh, inputs. Um, one of those is land, but I'll come to that a bit later in land rights. Um, even basic things like cement. Cement has been around three times the world price in Africa. Um, uh, the richest man in Africa, um, who's made his money honestly, um, is, a, is, is a cement baron. Um, and uh, why is he the richest man in Africa? Because cement in Africa is three times the world price. Um, skilled workers. For years there's been inadequate training of construction workers in Africa. And so there's a chronic shortage. Although construction is very labor intensive, there's a chronic shortage of the skills that are needed. Take Zambia, where they had to fly in welders from, from, from Asia. Just, just imagine how much cheaper it would have been to actually build a college of technology and train workers up. Industrial organization. If we look at the organization of, of the construction industry in Africa, there's a few large firms and then it's informality. What got London built was a lot of small formal building, building firms. And that sector is tiny in Africa. 
So, um, without formality, you cannot get the benefits either of scale or of continuity or of legality. Scale, continuity, legality. So what can be done? Um, let me just suggest uh, one possible approach to rethinking building standards. And that is to start with a realistic estimate of affordability. What sort of housing is affordable for an ordinary urban household? So start with a realistic estimate of affordability. Then do an exercise of pricing up what would be the cost of a house that complied with building standards. Okay. What I think that exercise would show is that complying with building standards leaves you with a housing cost which is completely unaffordable for ordinary households. And then you start to think, is that a good idea? Is that what we want to do? Do we want to regulate as illegal the housing appropriate for ordinary people? Third thing you could do is benchmark the cost of key components in the construction of a house. Why are some of these key components so expensive? So much for affordability. Without affordability, you don't get started. Let me quickly address legal rights. And there are, there are really two central points here. One is, who should own um, the land on which housing is built? Um, the process of urbanization generates enormous value. Density increases economic value massively. And the, that huge gain in value accrues to the owners of the land on which it happens. So should that be private or should it be social? It doesn't happen because of the owners of land. It happens because of a coordination phenomenon. And if anybody is managing that coordination phenomenon, it's government. And so to the, to all, to the extent possible, that huge gain in value should be socialized it should accrue to city governments. The one place in the world where that unambiguously happens at the moment is China. In Africa, it really doesn't. Now, how can we make that happen? The simplest way, the simplest practical way, is not to shift ownership to the state. That sounds simple, but is a political nightmare in most societies. The simplest way is to tax the appreciation of value and to tax it heavily. This, so that's one problem, is to whom does the accumulation of value accrue? The second problem is legal rights need to be clear for urban land. And at the moment, across Africa, they're not. The last month I've been in Guinea and Liberia, and both countries, I talked to the judiciary, um, and it was a salutary experience, right? That I've realized that uh, lawyers are not the same as economists. Right? Um, what lawyers want 
is to agonize over whose rights are the strongest. I had dinner with the Chief Justice of Ghana a few months ago. He said, oh, we've been, we've been working on that for 40 years. And basically the implication was they were nowhere near finishing be another 40 years. We cannot wait for 40 years. Without clarity of ownership of urban land, nobody's going to invest on it. Not in it, but on it. Nobody's going to build a city. And so economists' perception is, never mind the niceties, get clarity. Now, how do we do that in a practical way? And let me suggest a, a two-step procedure. One is really introduce a heavy tax on the appreciation in value. The more you tax value, the easier the politics of who owns land becomes, because the less it matters. Most of the gain is going to accrue to the state anyway. Once you've done that, then I recommend the Uganda approach to getting legal clarity of urban land rights. And that was first say, all, there's a deadline by which if you do not declare a claim on land, no subsequent claim will be valid. And that flushed out a lot of claims. And then you say, all claims, multiple claims for the same piece of property or land will be adjudicated by a special transparent court and decided by such and such a date. And you fast track legal resolution. Uganda did that in 1992 when it was just recovering from chaos. It did it just in time as well because then it got the coffee boom and that coffee boom was invested in Kampala. So that's the second impediment, legal rights. Let me finally turn to the third impediment which is financial innovation. Um, and remember, the banks are not the place to look to for solutions. Um, what can be done? Well, the governor of the Central Bank of Nigeria, Governor Sanusi, um, is well aware of this problem. But again, he's, he's got very limited scope to deal with it. And so what he's done is introduced a, a heavily subsidized interest rate for housing of 6%, I believe. But the interest rate in the market is 18%. So you know, that's not viable at scale. What it's going to produce is a few lucky people who get a mortgage cheap. Right? So that's not going to build mass housing in Nigeria. So what we need is very low <coughs> interest rates. If interest rates are 18% a year, you're dead in the water. Right? The, the unit cost of a house could be driven down, I suspect, to around the $20,000 level. Yeah, that's about as low as it's going to get. In Mexico, which is Mexico's much higher income level, much higher cost level in principle than Africa, they managed to build 800,000 houses a year at about $35,000 unit cost. So that's pretty good. I mean, by current African standards, $35,000 would be a miracle, right? Let's get it down to about 20, and then think what's affordable, what's an affordable interest rate. And it's going to be something like 5%. But we can't have 5% interest rates when inflation is hovering around 
10% and volatile. So what's the way out of the box? Is it the heavy subsidy? <coughs> no, I've, not, I've actually nothing against subsidies within at a modest scale. The government of Chile, which is not noted for <coughs> recklessness, subsidizes housing because there are big externalities to having owner occupation. But I think the right way to, to approach the problem in Africa of high and variable inflation and the need to get interest rates no higher than about 5% is indexation. Indexation has been used elsewhere, but it's not used in Africa. You index the principles, and you build in a, a real interest rate of not more than 5%. And by indexation, you can make the annual repayments affordable. The principle rises at the rate of index, at the rate of inflation, but gradually the principle is whittled away in real terms. So, I've been through three of the uh, impediments. Remember there are five, and now I'm gonna hand over to, uh, to Tony Venables to, to take us through the next two. Okay, thanks. So you'll remember that Paul's uh, given me the job, I think, of uh, infrastructure and jobs, making sure uh, cities are productive places and housing uh, enables workers uh, to be productive. Um, needless to say, the transition between Paul and myself is not going to be that seamless at all. I'll sort of address those two issues. Um, but what I want to do is change focus a little from the housing side to placing that in the wider context of the city uh, and making productive cities and wrap it up with housing. I mean, that's basically what this project is going to be about. But uh, let, 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 let me try and get you thinking a bit more generally uh, about what makes cities work. And I think the way to start thinking uh, generally about that is to actually think about cities uh, in, in the developed world, which on the whole do work rather well. Uh, one way of putting it, um, and this is in small font. Uh, one way of putting it is that the title of uh, Ed Glazer's new uh, best-selling book on this. The title is The Triumph of the Cities, but it's the subtitle that says it all. The subtitle is How Our Greatest Invention Makes Us Richer, Smarter, Greener, Healthier, and Happier. So we do have this idea, or at least Ed Glazer does, and I share it, of developed country cities really delivering uh, on that list uh, of adjectives uh, he put there. And of course, that is backed by evidence. Uh, cities are the source of innovation. Uh, cities are, on the whole, greener uh, than the non-urban living. And of course, cities are highly productive. A lot of econometric uh, statistical evidence, on, I'm talking about developing developed countries, uh, a lot of statistical evidence that cities, larger cities, uh, deliver higher productivity. The, the standard fact here, the summary of uh, the research literature, is that doubling city size raises productivity, labor productivity, by something like three, three to eight percent uh, percentage uh, points, which is enormous. If you double from you know, 250,000 to half a million to a million to two million, that's a lot of doublings, right? So if you're increasing productivity by that sort of amount uh, each time, so we've got this model of developed country cities that are fantastically productive uh, and all that. 
I want to pursue a bit further, you know, why that is, what we think the driver of this productivity uh, in developed country cities is. And the essence of the city, I think, is, is a balance between a lot of benefits that come from putting economic activity and putting people close together. So proximity, density, scale, that gives real economic payoffs. But on the other hand, some costs of congestion, grime, crime, all that stuff, all the, all the disadvantages of cities. So we've got the benefit thing on the one side, the cost thing on the other. Unpicking the benefits a little bit, what's, what's really driving that? Well, it's partly scale. Uh, sheer scale means you can have lots of firms, intense competition, and the firms can be big as well and have economies of scale. So you're getting all that. Sometimes that converts into clustering, you know, clusters of you know, the City of London, whatever, uh, really working well. Uh, cities, that scale, proximity, density thing, again, also makes labour markets work much better. Uh, you can get develop specialist skills and match them to the particular needs of firms. So thick labour markets work really well. Um, there are lots of knowledge spillovers uh, of all sorts uh, that go on in cities. I, mean, I guess you probably know these sort of you know, claims that we all have a network of sort of 70 to 100 people that we link with in one way or another. Now, if you're living in a village, you know, everyone's got that network, but it's all exactly the same people, right? You know, you know, population of the village is 70 or 80, and that's it. Obviously, if you're in a city, you've all got a network that size, but they're all different. So think of the sort of knowledge diffusion uh, through that system. Uh, completely, completely different, uh, much superior. That's the benefit side. The cost side, yeah, bigger cities, you know, commuting costs, uh, land rents associated with that, uh, crime, congestion, these things. But the point I'm trying to make here is that developed country cities have on the whole done a pretty good job of securing those benefits and controlling the costs and then reaching the balance that we live in. And obviously we complain about the costs more than we appreciate the benefits sometimes. But developed country cities have done that pretty well. What about the developing world? Uh, what about developing country cities? Well, in some cases, you know, perhaps they have. One obviously thinks of, of East Asia, uh, I think. But clearly, in many, many cases, uh, developing country cities haven't achieved that sort of list of benefits of scale, proximity, uh, vitality uh, that I was talking about. They certainly haven't managed to control the costs of congestion and all that. Those things are out of control. And they really haven't managed to, well, you've got to they haven't maximized the benefit, benefits, they haven't controlled the costs, they haven't got the trade-off right, so they're not in the sort of right position of the trade-off between those things, things either. So with that, to get you thinking about cities as productive centers and that, that trade-off a little bit. Now let me turn back to the question of what should, how do we think about developing countries making, uh, improving the quality of their cities and making that uh, effective transition to uh, the triumph of the city. And of course that transition that's got to be made, that we hope will be made, it's in the context of around about 2 billion more people moving to developing country cities over the next 30 years, sort of doubling of population, urban population. So it's how do we accommodate uh, that two billion people in cities that look more like uh, the successful, triumphant Western cities, not the uh, sometimes dysfunctional 
developing country cities. Okay, now let me begin to pick up the points, uh, the agenda that Paul set me. Oh, I'm doing fine. Um, how do we do that? First point, I suppose, is really cities have better use their land uh, effectively. Yeah, that sounds completely obvious, uh, but if you think about a city, land space is the scarce factor. You know, people in one country can come in and out, they're mobile, capital can come in and out. What's special about a city? It's the proximity density stuff. It's how many, it's getting people together. So space, yeah, land really is, is the scarce factor. So um, using it effectively is absolutely key. The way I like to think about that is that it really depends on, on three, three things. Doing, getting that effective land use uh, depends on three things. The first one is um, using particular areas of land for the right sort of thing. I'll elaborate what I mean by that in a moment. But getting land use right, um, using land efficiently in that sense. Second thing, making the complementary investments uh, effectively. So that's in infrastructure in particular. So you know, when you've got the raw, undeveloped land, as it were, you know, make sure you put the right sorts of activities on it. Then do the complementary investments, the infrastructure. That's the second point. Uh, to maximise the value from it. But then also, all the time, think about the externalities that are being created, right? The proximity density thing, you know, my productivity rubs off on you, there are these externalities going on the whole time, so you have to think about that. Let me say a bit about each of those three points. First, this land use question. Uh, what should different bits of land be used for? Well. Yeah, there's really just one you know, very old, very basic, but very important insight here, which is that land in the centre of the city is more valuable uh, than land at the edges. So there's typically a rent gradient, uh, you know, expensive land in the centre, cheaper land at the edge. Uh, we all know that. But of course, what that leads to is an efficient land use. So the centre is higher density than the edges, the centre is the commercial district. There may be multiple centres, of course, but the commercial district uh, to which people travel. But it's, if, if you want having your land use such that you're getting the density and the density in the right place and using it effectively is just really, really important. How do you do that? Well, actually, markets are pretty good at, at delivering that, right? You get a land, you get a price gradient, a rent gradient, then the high-value activities will go into the centre, the high-rise will go into the centre. So the market is pretty, pretty good at doing, doing that. But, of course, markets only work if, well, Paul's already talked about two obstacles. Uh, one is legal rights uh, being screwed up. So if the market's land market is not operating because of lack of clarity in, in tenure and whatever, uh, that's a real problem. And the land market can also be screwed up because of inappropriate regulations. So the, the building, the, the too high building standards. The floor, floor area ratios that lots of cities have set. Uh, so those are caps on the amount of usable floor space you can have per unit area, which are sometimes really set quite low. So you get low rise city centers 
instead of cramming density into the centre, you have low rise, you have sprawl, so you're just not getting the, the, the density, the appropriate land use. Okay, so using land effectively. One, yeah, that land use question. And as I say, I think just letting markets speak on that is pretty good. Second element was investing, uh, making the complementary investments. So this, this, this obviously takes us uh, to infrastructure. Uh, getting that right <laughs> to maximize value uh, from the land. Okay, what are the characteristics of infrastructure? It's certainly got increasing returns to scale, possibly to the extent uh, of being, being a public good. That's one pair of characteristics. Another characteristic is that the, the, the spatial range we're talking about varies hugely uh, for different sorts of infrastructure. Uh, so, for example, um, laying out streets, putting street lighting in, putting basic drains in the street, that's a very local public good, right? It affects the street. Uh, that, that's one, that one, one level. At the intermediate level, I guess there are the sort of local roads and things like schools as well, which are serving a neighbourhood rather than just a street. And then at the wider level, again, of course, you've got the urban transit systems and the, and the freeways really providing the infrastructure uh, for the city as a whole. So we have to think about how to get those various things supplied uh, in a cost-effective, timely, efficient, uh, appropriate way. Let me go back to a little bit of, I mean, the history of London again, which, which we've been reading about in the context of this project, and it, it's really fascinating. As, as Paul mentioned, London managed to get some of the infrastructure built early because it was quite large developers doing the development. Yeah, the Duke of Westminster said, right, there's someone called Belgravia, and I'm, I'm going to lay out the street plan, put in the basic drains, so that sort of basic... Uh, fairly local level uh, infrastructure was done by large, large developers in the case of London. But of course, those, that, and that was private sector. But of course, the private sector didn't do the wider infrastructure for London, and it didn't get done until you know, the health crises of the mid-19th century, you know, about the great stink, where what, there were, I mean, private developers had put in some drains, and there were some, I think the figure is about a quarter of a million cesspits it wasn't until, until the 1850s that the cesspits actually got replaced by a main sewage system, and that was government, right? So private developers took some of the role, government took, took the rest. Uh, okay, that's London story. What about Ashantitown? What about Fre Freetown, you know, the country that's had a civil war, lots of people have moved into the town, shanties have developed. Well, you don't have large agents there. You have very, very small agents. What, what, what are the public goods? What is the infrastructure being supplied in that shantytown? Well, there's barely even a path through it, much less you know, roads or drains or streetlights or, or schools or education or transit systems, right? So the point I'm trying to make here is you've got to get that infrastructure in. In some contexts, and for some of the fairly local stuff, the private sector uh, will do it. In other contexts, it simply won't, and it's got to be the public sector uh, that, 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 that plays that role uh, in, in, in delivering the infrastructure. But again, picking up very importantly on what something that Paul said, it's got to be the public sector that does it, that pays for it, but of course it brings with it the development gain. Right? The development gain comes from improving the land and then getting the, all the productivity and, and, and all that. 
So, yeah, in, if the private sector is not going to do it, and that's context-specific, as I've tried to say, the public sector had better do it, um, but then capture the, the, the land depreciation associated with it. Land taxes uh, and all that are important. So using land efficiently, uh, efficient use, uh, getting those investments, infrastructure investments, efficient investments done. The third point on that list was a slightly different one. It's saying uh, create externalities. All those productivity effects come from externalities uh, of one sort or another. In other words, the benefit of density and proximity. So you want a working environment where you get that happening. Think of that in two different ways. Obviously, a lot of what goes on in cities is, 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 is non-traded production. No, it's sort of small-scale enterprises, uh, markets, retailers, whatever, just, just selling for the local community, the repair shops, uh, all that stuff. Yeah, you want, you, you want high density. You want mixed use. Uh, you want to arrange the city so there are the workshops in the bottom and the you know, accommodation above. So you really want density uh, so you get, so this is a further argument for density to get those, uh, the, those benefits coming through. Some employment is in those sorts of activities, some is in the yeah, modern sector, uh, to, use, to use those words, uh, more internationally tradable activities, you know, manufacturing, international services, uh, whatever. Um, and you want that activity to form into clusters. Yeah, you want the, the City of London, you want, you want the, the cluster. That probably forms naturally, you know, the science park around the university, uh, manufacturing around the port, probably forms on sort of various nodal points like that. Maybe it doesn't, maybe there are arguments for zoning, but yeah, cautious arguments, I think, uh, yeah, worried about overzealous uh, regulation uh, a few minutes ago. So we need all that, all those ingredients, and obviously much, much more, to get uh, that efficient urban structure uh, that can deliver the benefits and cap, cap the costs. One other very, one or two other extremely brief points. Um, so far, everything I've been saying has been about stuff within one city. But obviously, if we're thinking about urban economics, we should also think a little bit about city systems. It's not just uh, the primate city, it's the secondary, the tertiary, and all, and all that. Uh, there are definitely issues to think about there, and in particular, the likelihood that the primate city, uh, certainly in large countries, is really likely to get too large. Right? Remember I said there was this trade-off between the benefits and the, and the costs. But obviously, if you go too far, the congestion costs and stuff will take over. Um, there's some presumption that the primate city might actually get, get too large uh, and out of control, essentially because of coordination failures in getting secondary and uh, tertiary, tertiary cities going. So there's some argument for policy intervention there to try and encourage secondary tertiary cities. Although, of course, once again, with great care, I guess the rule one is only think about doing it where people and firms want to be anyway. So that's usually going to mean an existing city or a satellite city to, 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 to a very large city, not the new capital uh, out in the middle of nowhere. Let me finish on that. So we've got the detailed housing stuff that Paul talked about. We've got the larger city picture of trying to make cities productive. 
we've got this trade-off where the market does some things well in the cases for deregulation, property rights, getting all that going, but also the role for the state where the private sector isn't doing the infrastructure, well, it depends on context, the role for the state, the role of land taxes uh, in financing that. And then really importantly, as Paul said at the beginning, for, effective, for policy to be effective on this, it has to be joined up and it lives in all sorts of different ministries at present. So getting the, the push, the research push, the uh, uh, policy push to really make this work better for cities is uh, pretty central uh, to, to some of our agendas. Thanks. As um, Paul said in the introductory remarks, um, I mean, between himself and uh, Terry, they've, they've taken us through uh, what you might call a theoretical framework of what needs to be done. And I'm going to just try and um, bring some sort of more real life flavor to that by you know, speaking essentially about uh, Lagos. Um, just for those of you who may not be familiar with Lagos, Lagos is, um, Lagos is Nigeria's leading city, used to be the capital the, the, uh, you know, before 20 years ago when the capital was moved to Abuja, but it remains the major commercial uh, nerve center of Nigeria. Uh, it's about the tiny you know, city, about 3,600 square kilometers, uh, which represents just about 0.4% of the land uh, mass of Nigeria. But then it is home to 13% of the population. Uh, so currently, uh, the population is about 21 million, and about 50% of that population is under 24 years. Uh, what we call metropolitan Lagos is about 20% of that land area. But in that metropolitan area, about 60% of the population resides. Uh, and so you can then begin to picture um, about 13 million people living in about um, 720 um, you know, square kilometers. Of, you know. And then, because traditionally, for many of the reasons that you know, Paul alluded to, the way housing has developed is mostly a sprawl rather than um, you know, the, the sort of real density, high density developments that you expect, it gets really, uh, you know, congested. Again, the way Lagos has developed, we have the islands of Lagos, you know, the, what we call Lagos 
Island, then Ikoyi, Victoria Island, Lekki, these are the principal islands. The commercial activity and work opportunities are concentrated in, in, on the islands, the mainland areas where the majority of the people live. So daily, that gives rise to 7 million people commuting you know, in the morning from the mainland to the islands in search, you know, in search of economic opportunities. And then, you know, you know the reverse direction, um, you know, later on in the day. But again, just to give you a sense of, um, you know, dimension, Lagos, even though it's the smallest, you know, geographically speaking, as I said, it's the main city in the country. Lagos accounts for 26% of Nigeria's GDP, in, and Lagos is not an oil-producing. Um, you, know, you know, state. But therefore, when you actually look at the non-oil GDP, that accounts for about 60% of the non-oil GDP. So it's, it's, as Paul said, a very important city. The, the GDP of about 80 billion US dollars now, and um, if it were a country by itself, probably be the ninth or tenth largest uh, country in Africa by GDP terms. But this is a city that has, that is faced with significant, um, you know, infrastructural challenges. And so, especially also and including, you know, you know, majorly housing. By the mid-70s, Lagos had a population of about 3 million people. Over a period of nearly over two decades leading up to about 2,000, there was minimal investment in infrastructure, you know, during the uh, era of military governance. And so the infrastructure that served three million people remained in place as the population grew to about 15 million, um, you know, people. But over the last 10 years, we have, you know, then taken, you know, steps to address you know this. You know. You know this. The, this challenge. Of course, when you have that kind of situation, it creates, you know, desperation. And you know, when you have such critical, you know, such shortage in infrastructure, and, and and such desperation will create, you know, law and order. You know, you know, challenges. For us, therefore, housing, transportation, and unemployment. You know, represent some of the key. Uh, you know, challenges as, you know, a city. We have 8% unemployment, uh, you, know, you know, today in Lagos. Compared to the national average, the Nigerian national average unemployment, which is 21%, 8% looks like, um, you know, very good, but it's still a significant amount of, um, you know, unemployment. Um, in terms of housing, the shortage is at least a million units of housing. Uh, because about 60% of the population currently live in what we call informal settlements. That's you know, housing that hasn't developed without you know, proper infrastructure, without proper adherence to town planning rules. And then, of course, you know, some of the, the you know, this, this, when a, a city is growing that rapidly, 
you know, slumification is also, you know, a challenge. So you've got some slums that have, you know, developed. But again, in trying to address that, we face the challenge of, you know, social safeguards. Uh, and you know, people from the World Bank here, I mean, they know, and uh, other development agencies, they know all about, you know, that. And sometimes we want, I mean, this will live in slums. You've got to be able to get them out to redevelop those places. But then when you move them to in the interim, and sometimes we've um, wondered whether we will need the help that, um, you know, London got to the, the, the famous fire disasters. <laughs> To actually be able to, you know, to you know, to, to, to resolve that problem. Um, so for us, you know, in terms of dealing with the housing problem, key changes include land administration that uh, you know Paul and Terry spoke to, infrastructure, especially power. For instance, you need density; you need to go up. But then, if you have the sort of power challenges that we have, the town planning, uh, you know, regulations, which are also referred to, require once you're going above four floors, you need, you know, lifts, you need elevators in the building. To put elevators, you need power. And so as, because you have a challenge in that area, therefore it limits how high, um, you know, you can, you know, you can go. And then, of course, finance is, 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 is a major impediment. We just have uh, a mortgage finance. We have a mortgage finance sector that is, at best, just in its infancy. It's against this background that, you know, in the city of Lagos, we have set for ourselves the vision to be, you know, Africa's model mega city and one that is safe, secure, functional, and productive. And in doing so, over, you know, uh, you know, from 2007, we adopted what you know, the mission of poverty eradication and sustainable economic growth through infrastructure renewal and development. So we have embarked on a fairly, you know, ambitious infrastructure development uh, program. In 2007, we estimated the amount that was needed to address the infrastructure challenge over a 10-year period at 50 billion U.S. dollars. We are halfway gone in that 10-year um, you know, program, um, but we have not had been able to mobilize up to 50% of the resources required. Um, you know, so far on that uh, program, we reckon probably uh, an investment of about a quarter has, uh, you know, already been uh, made. But critically, one of the approaches we have adopted is to try and redevelop, you know, the city into what we call 12 model cities. Okay, and in, in each of these uh, cities within the city, people should be able to, you know, live, work, and play, and which will then, you know, limit the necessity for every daily, you know, you know, commuting, which, you know, then creates its own challenges in terms of public transportation and, 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 and you know, others. And 
our plan in our planning horizon we envisage a city of you know potentially 40 million people um, you know in the future but again you know finance as I said is a significant challenge and so for us we recognize that the state the government itself cannot fund this ambitious program alone and so we, we have developed um, a you know a fairly robust public-private partnership, you know, in work, uh, Office of Public-Private Partnership is quite um, um, well-resourced and actively engaged. And um, two of the probably most significant, um, you know, achievements over the last five years in that respect, we've got a private, privately financed toll road in this, in, you know, in the city, a 50-kilometer uh, toll road that seeks to open up the eastern flank of um, you know this you know the city so an investment of over 400 million dollars by private invest, um, you know investor now we are in the process of concluding um, negotiations with a private investor in our first you know, first uh, light rail mass transit um, you know, um, development for the city. With a city of 21 million people, there's no real transit uh, system, you know, uh, today. Well, there is something, but that is, that was left by um, the British uh, in the colonial era, which is, you know, really, there hasn't been fixed for a long time, so it doesn't, it's, it's, not, it's not effective. But that, again, the we are seeing the state having to invest in the tracks and the stations, the value of about a million dollars. So 27 kilometer light rail transit going to the middle of the city from the western flank of the, you know, of the city. And then the private investor bringing in the rolling stock and signaling um, systems and then operations and management and investment of about half a billion um, you know, U.S. dollars. So those two represent some of our uh, important uh, um, initiatives on the PPP front. The, in tackling the infrastructure challenge, in, you know, driving investment in infrastructure, that's also helping us deal with the challenge of, you know, unemployment. Um, you know, but there are also specific job creation initiatives that are being, um, you know, embarked upon, one of which is, um, you know, like to just uh, publicly acknowledge the support that we get from the DFID, um, DFID sponsoring what we call, uh, it's called GEMS, the GEMS uh, program, Growth uh, and Employment uh, Strategy, which seeks to, um, you know, there are clusters of, you know, uh, industrial activity in the in the, you know, commercial and industrial activity in the in the city, trying to promote those and, and, and all of that, and then of course we are working with um, uh, Professor Hernando de Soto's ILD on a program for trying to unlock what we call what call dead capital in the hands of you know the people, practically. Most of the land is owned by people, but you have the challenge of, you know, you know, titles, you know, clear, you know, you know, uh, and um, clear legal title to, you know, to those um, properties. 
Uh, and along with that is also uh, we're working with the ILD also on a program of you know increasing formalization of the you know the informal sector. The informal sector accounts for over 60 percent of the of, of economic activity in you know in the city, and and that that um, you know the city is doing reasonably well, better than uh, you know any other part of the country in terms of you know taxation, uh, you know, but then with so much of the economy in the informal sector, there is still a lot that can be done. We reckon that um, uh, there are probably about 8 million taxable people in, this, in, 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 in the city. We currently have just about 3 million people paying taxes. Uh, so this, these are some of the challenges in mobilizing the, you know, the financing that, you know, that is required. We are, of course, you know, engaged with the IGC. We've had uh, preliminary discussions with, uh, you know, Professor Collier on the strategies for tackling the housing challenge. And, we, you know, we're basically in agreement with, um, you know, IGC's analysis of the challenge for housing and the framework that you know that they propose for tackling same, and we, we look forward to you know working with them to develop a holistic strategy, but you know dealing with um, our housing you know challenge. Um, we are pleased that while the city uh, remains challenged, as you had so Collier give a strong endorsement. There is we have made some significant progress over the last uh, five years under Governor Fashola's, um, you know, leadership, uh, which is why, you know, recently when the Economic Intelligence Unit came up with their ranking of cities, uh, 140 major cities around the world, you know, their livability index, and uh, ranked Lagos number 138 based on five main Categories of factors, stability, healthcare, culture and environment, education, infrastructure. And over this same five year period, the EIU's ranking of Lagos seems to have uh, you know, deteriorated when everyone who's been to Lagos knows that in the same time frame, there's been massive improvement along these five categories of factors. We, 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 we think that there's doubtful integrity of the data on which that ranking is based. But, uh, you know, we, we take solace also that um, MasterCard, for instance, last year when they set up their first office, you know, major uh, international office in about six years, they chose Lagos. And in doing so, they too had five factors on which they, they ranked the various options that they had around the world. They said Lagos came top on those five factors. So, uh, and these five factors are not significantly different from the factors that um, the, the EIU looks at. So maybe it's a case of beauty being in the eyes of the beholder. <laughs> um, so essentially, um, so say housing, you know, work opportunity, employment challenges, but then uh, we think that um, it's something that you know we 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 basically have 
a fair sense of what needs to be done. And as I said, we are in agreement with the IGC's framework for dealing with this. And we hope that um, we can take this forward. Thank you. Now, we've, we've just time for, uh, we're definitely going to finish by 10 past. Um, we've just time for one round of questions, three questions from the audience. And I see questions straight away. Sir. My name is... Uh, yeah, it's working. My name is Kenny Spencer. I'm from the newest nation on earth, South Sudan. My question is very quick. Uh, London population increased from six, 1 million to 6 million in about 100 years, and that's shocking. Lagos, the population increased from 3 million to 15 million in 30 years. That is horrible. <laughs> but in Juba, South Sudan, the population of Juba increased from a quarter of a million to one million in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> this is more like carelessness. <laughs> this happened because immediately after independence, so many of our brothers and sisters who are living in the north and many other surrounding countries rushed back with the hope of at least enjoying some of the uh, benefits of independence. Two. During the war, when most of the people ran out, they ended up in the cities like Kampala, Nairobi, and Khartoum, and produced the children who are the ones coming back now. These children have come back urbanized. Even when they were forced to go to the rural areas, they ended up running back, and that's what has built the population of Juba so horribly. The question now is, what shock absorbers would you, as experts, recommend for our young nation? Thank you. What a very good first question. <laughs> <laughs> Who can cap that with a second question? <laughs> Hi, uh, I'm Nicola Limodi. I'm a PhD student in economics at the LSE. And I want to be a bit provocative about slums. Uh, there was some reference in your talk. And uh, I wonder if uh, what I would be interested in knowing what you both the practitioner and the academic feel about slums upgrading program because it's a way to liberalize living standards. So it's a bit of a build now and regulate later approach. Uh, there, are, there have been significant uh, investment, infrastructural investment by the World Bank and other development banks. So there seems to be a different, the only problem is land rights, which are not there, which are not recognized. So I would be happy to hear what you both feel about that. Thank you. Another good question. One more. Right, we've got two really good ones. So let's. Um, sorry, was this a question? Yeah, yeah. Yes, Arya Lagra, Emeritus Professor of International Community Integration. Uh, just a, a, a word of consolation for Ben. <laughs> the fact that Lagos has made all these improvements and has not gone up on the chart does not suggest that. Uh, that's something bad because I lived in Japan in a city called Fukuoka for 23 years and it's changed tremendously and has been rated as the best city in, the, in, in, in Asia. 
the po point is other cities may have been making the same improvements and that does not push you off the scale. Mm. So I think you shouldn't worry too much about it. Thank you. Um, let's, uh, let's start with that Juba shock absorber and I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll get, us, get us started. Um, I was in Juba earlier this year and um, uh, one of the things that happens to cities in uh, the phase of super growth is that the main activity of the city becomes building itself. Right? This was true of all the, the, the miracle cities of the 19th century. Their main activity for a sort of glorious decade or so was building themselves. It's only then that they diversified into some sort of export activity, as it were. Um, Juba, for the next decade, what's its core activity? Building itself, creating a viable city. Um, and of course, over the next decade, you'll have the oil to finance that. Um, now, the challenge is, uh, that, that Juba faces is who is going to build Juba? Because when I was there, um, you know who was building Juba. Um, it wasn't young South Sudanese. Uh, it was building workers from Kenya, from Uganda, from Ethiopia. Uh, and so the, the real challenge for the government is not just building it, it's making sure that local youth um, are skilled up to the point where they are the people who are building the city. I think it's, it's potentially tragic that um, the last generation could have the narrative, we liberated our country, and the, the role for the present generation of youth should be to say, we built it. And instead, they're going to be saying, we watched whilst it was built. Um, Tony, Ben, would you like to add anything on shock absorbers? Well, <laughs> Um, the only thing is not to be daunted by, you know, the challenges. We have chosen not to be daunted. I mean, you know, um, if you face this sort of situation that we face, I mean, yours in relative terms is a lot, but in absolute terms, we face a mammoth. I mean, but just take it one right step at a time. I don't think there's a silver bullet that can you know, you know, give you an overnight solution to that. It's a, the right policies consistently, um, you know, applied over time. And to come to terms with the fact that um, government alone can't address that challenge. So you've got to create an enabling environment for uh, the private sector to come along with you in, 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 in that. But Thank you. Let's turn to the slum upgrading program. It's a great question on which to finish because um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a moment of, of truth. Um, the, the prevailing um, policy advice in the area of housing is indeed to um, make informality work. Yeah? And um, Tony and I are um, in very much in, an, in a minority in taking the view that that, that isn't um, where we should be uh, leading, that, that, that basically informality, in our view, carries some very big 
costs. And so the challenge is not to make informality work, it's to make formality work. Um, without formality, it is radically difficult to get, um, uh, to get collateral to work in finance. It's radically difficult to get um, easy valuation of housing. This is something I didn't mention, but building standards and professional architects designing things are a vital component of getting standardized housing units and standardization of housing units is vital in getting easy valuation, which further enhances collateralization. And so there are a whole slew of things where if you don't get formality, um, you, you don't get these benefits. So yes, we should try and upgrade slums, they're there, but Africa's future is going to be a lot more urbanization. And the question is, is that extra urbanization, the next two decades, a tidal wave of urbanization in Africa, is that going to be the same as before, <coughs> informal with a bit of up retrospective upgrading, or is it going to be the, the quantum leap to a formal process? Tony, do you want to backtrack yeah, I mean, from that? Or? Yeah, I want to backtrack slightly. <laughs> you, you backtrack. There's a stop flow problem here, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah the, the fl for the flow of incoming migrants, yeah, I mean, developing formal uh, you know, low-income private housing is, is, is re really important. But that leaves a huge stock, and uh, upgrading that is important. I mean, that stock has a, has a dynamic of, you know, people you know, building, informulating, accumulating assets, with whatever property rights. Um, so understanding that dynamic, and yeah, so it, it is important to improve the stock as well as think about the flow. Of course, you could envisage what happened to my parents, which is something called slum clearance, um, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, that's how Britain actually did it. Didn't upgrade them, it cleared them. Anyway, Ben, you should well, have the well, last word on this. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we basically, I agree with um, you know with you know with, with you know with Paul. We we, we we don't think that this effort to you know make informality work, which as he says is a very thing, um, thinking. We don't think that that's what's going to work for us. We we have uh, currently in its in its last year um, a World Bank funded program for you know upgrading nine of the slums uh, you know in the city and uh, it's basically built around this minimalist approach with you know an overriding concern for you know social you know safeguards so don't change don't you know the, this arm so massively that you know uh, richer people now move in and you know disenfranchise, buy up the property from the poorer people who owned it, you know, somehow safeguard their, you know, those informal title rights and just try and make the place, you know, more livable. The, the, the problem is these slums are closer to the city center, which, as we heard earlier, represents the prime you property, sure. the value where, you know, you should be going for density. Okay, so we've developed an alternative, you know, program where now we, you know, and, and we have a pilot going on. We, we approach some of these, you know, you know, families 
and we agree to a temporary resettlement because the the, the, the land sizes are being, the land sizes are too tiny anyway for any meaningful commercial development. So what you need is to get a group of you know you know families with contiguous you know properties you know agreeing to put that into a pool and then you redevelop it into something really big and massive and then you know they have a chance of coming back there they get a unit or whatever of the property the new property in exchange for what they gave up uh, or they may decide that you know because of the much enhanced commercial value of that they might you know just decide to cash in and move to you know to um, you know the outskirts where it's cheaper for them to you know to live. Uh, we this is a, a program that we are piloting. We think that that's the way that um, you know uh, we, we should be going. Thank you very much, Ben. I'm sorry we've overrun, but I think we did substance. So thank you very much. <laughs>